morning <clears throat> I'm reading from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and I'll read to uh, verse 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Notice that Paul is not dealing with this belief primarily in the resurrection of Christ. The Christians are denying that there is a general resurrection. And Paul is arguing that if they believe in the resurrection of Christ, then they should also believe in a general resurrection. So they began then with an understanding, well, if Christ raised, then you are raised also. Otherwise, your faith is in vain. So Jesus' resurrection, Paul is saying, it's a well-attested event. They seem to believe that. And you should be able, he says, to extrapolate from there. And so he reminds them of the sequence of events. He appeared to Peter, maybe as the chief apostle, then to the twelve, then to about 500 brethren. And some of these are still alive. You can go talk to them if you, if you want. He was seen of James, the, the brother of Jesus. He says, then he appeared to all the apostles. So maybe he's referring to someone besides the twelve, clearly, because he already said the twelve. So maybe the seven disciples named in Luke chapter 10. And then he refers to himself as one untimely born. Uh, you know, he's kind of the, the uh, premature or the one that uh, he's going to say is the least. And so Paul is not so much trying to convince them of the resurrection of Christ, but he's reminding them of the center of the gospel which they've believed. And he's reminding them of this, not because the resurrection of Christ itself is difficult, but believing in their own resurrection, I think, is hard for them to believe. They've begun to deny it. 
And perhaps it's easier to believe, you know, in some vague soul survival or belief in some cloudy afterlife uh, rather than bodily resurrection. Bodily resurrection makes of the afterlife or of salvation a fact on the order of your present embodiment. And this makes a world of difference in how we live now. And that's what Paul is arguing and has been arguing throughout Corinthians. Christian ethics is a resurrection ethics in that it values embodied reality of ourselves and others. Paul is arguing throughout Corinthians and also in his other letters that resurrection makes all the difference in how we treat other people. Uh, It makes all the difference in how we treat the world. And the implication of baptism, which is, you know, you die and you're raised, you're putting on the resurrection life of Christ, you're embodying, you're living out that. And so the result is that ethically, you begin to walk as Christ walked. So the resurrection gives us a new way of living, and everything revolves around this. Uh, it is a present tense participation through baptism, you know, in the resurrection of Christ. Paul says he's just talked about this. The Corinthians are having some trouble with, you know, the various way they do things. He says, even as one, the one body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of this body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. That is, the resurrection of Christ is a living resurrection in the, the church, the body of Christ, is a continuation of the resurrection. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And because we were baptized, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, uh, all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. What is the, what is the Holy Spirit? It's the, the power of life. It's the resurrection power that then makes us a, a unified body. So resurrection in baptism is taken up as a kind of morality, a kind of ethic. In baptism, his story, his life, death, and resurrection becomes our story. So it's a sharing in the eschatological freedom of our risen Lord. All barriers, he describes, you know, similar thing in Galatians are broken down. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And then again, you know, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free. Um, We're all Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. The resurrection is then the down payment. Here is the the inheritance. So ethnic barriers, socioeconomic barriers, gender barriers are broken down as there is now a community of resurrection. And I think we could describe those barriers as the communities of death, communities of separation, communities of alienation. So resurrection life overcomes the barriers of a life oriented to death. And as a result then, in places like Colossians, Paul says, well, do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal 
And again, in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free men. That is, this renewal, this resurrected kind of life is one in which we do not divide the world up. We are not alienated in the way that we were. The resurrection is an ethic, a way of living that we put on. I mean, that's the significance of both baptism and the Lord's Supper. I think we miss the Lord's Supper if we take the resurrection out of it. The Lord's Supper is a participation in the life, the resurrected life, the resurrected body of Christ. Uh, You know, this is Paul's warning. So he, he goes through, actually, he's building up to his whole argument about resurrection. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What body? Well, the body is that body that they're sinning against, their brothers and sisters. A man ought to examine himself and so eat and drink of the cup. And uh, that is that you're not recognizing the resurrected body of Christ in the community of the saved that you're celebrating in the Lord's Supper. So the resurrection is a transformation of human life and we're to live it out. I am the resurrection and the life Jesus says to Lazarus, and this then gives rise to a life, you know, that Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. And so we are no longer oriented to death, but to life and to a living hope, a resurrection ethic. In uh, Jewish understanding, resurrection is the commencement of the last days. This is the eschatological idea. You know, Ezekiel talked about uh, the resurrection of Israel. Through the Psalms, there is the idea that resurrection is a recreation that will overcome death at the end of time. Well, that's commenced, strangely enough, in the middle of history. Paul explains this. Paul, in his, he's in a synagogue in Pamphylia, and he goes into great detail, seemingly in the synagogues, a different kind of detail. He appeals to the Old Testament. He says, when they had carried on all that was written concerning him, that is, it's predicted in the Old Testament, he would die. They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise. That is, the promise made to the fathers is seen as fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he has raised up Jesus as is written In the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Speaking of seemingly David, but it's the throne of David. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he is spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And this was the promise, you know, David said, pray, I pray that my body would not see decay, that I will not suffer shame. He says in the psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That promise, that is, you know, that prayer is answered in Christ. 
So the resurrection is the vindication of the justice, of the righteousness that the Jews had been hoping for in the Old Testament. It's the state of harmony. You know, this is this final picture of harmony and peace. When do we enjoy that? Well, Paul is saying you enjoy it now. That is, that community of the saved is not one we're simply waiting for, but it's one that we, uh, we are provided here in the relationships of the church. Uh, so what is the justification you know, the, of this community? Well, it acts and lives in the idea of resurrection. Paul compares it to uh, the calling of Abraham. The calling of Abraham, you know, is a kind of idea that God is, it's on the order of creation. God can raise up from nothing, Paul says, you know, people, his children, like creation. He says, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Resurrection is on the order of creation in the role that it plays in our understanding. It corresponds to God's calling of Israel to the creation of a people. You know, in creation itself, God speaks and the world is changed. As with creation, God has spoken and there is new life in Christ. And so God's supreme word, his promise, his command is, you know, in this word that is God's life imparting self. You know, he's given us resurrection. Um, so the resurrection, we could say, as, and this is Paul's argument in both Corinthians and Galatians, is the establishment or the reestablishment of the community of Israel on a new basis. Maybe that's not big enough. We need to think bigger. It's actually a new way of construing the world. He is also the head of the body, the church, Paul says. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. So here is, you know, in the language of John, recreation. Here is, in the language of Paul, the reconciliation of all things, all created things. In time has begun, in Christ, a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled them to, to himself through Christ. So, you know, how do you get to the resurrection? That's sort of the, uh, the problem here. It's a, you don't, it's a, uh, not an argument that you can arrive at through some sort of frame of reference or understanding that you already have. What Paul is describing, what the writers of the New Testament are describing, it's an event that is without precedent. It's an event that you can't argue to. It defies the current canons of the study of history, of science, you know. You don't get to the resurrection through any of those things. So while Paul and the apostles, they will offer proofs of the resurrection, but proving the resurrection is sort of like proving creation itself. 
That is, you really can't arrive at this form of thought apart from faith. You cannot extrapolate to either resurrection or creation, but rather from creation, from resurrection, you get the Christian faith. And very early on, the tendency was to drift back into a kind of vague spirituality. By the second century, we have the same problem occurring uh, with uh, Justin Martyr uh, accusing the heretics. He says, you know, it's the, now they're denying the resurrection of Christ. And for Justin Martyr, he says, this is the dividing line between who is a real Christian and who is not. He to- tolerates dissents on matters, you know, a lot of different things, but in the dialogue, he says that those who do not believe in the resurrection do not deserve the name Christian. When I was in England, I, I heard the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, came to our little college there. Rowan Williams was a very impressive guy. And he has been criticized in the Church of England. He's, kind, he's, not, a, he's not a liberal, but nor is he profoundly conservative, or was. He's no longer Archbishop. But somebody asked him this question. They said, what do you have to believe to be a Christian? And he said, you have to believe in the resurrection of Christ. Uh, I think that a departure from that marks, or that is the demarcation from you know, 180 to the present, or even you know, in the, the time of the apostles. Both, but both Paul and Justin Martyr, they're addressing, they're arguing with people who are insiders, those who have believed but then have fallen into some sort of heterodoxy or or heresy, something that is a less full-fledged belief. So Paul is saying, you believe this, and here is why you believe this. He's encouraging them, you know, you should believe this. But having believed this, everything else falls into place. Your life together as Christians, the preaching of the gospel, the existence of the church, the shift that has taken place in world history, your manner of life. So Paul uses a mode of argumentation. You know, it's like Peter's uh, argument I discussed in Sunday school. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. You know, when everybody else is turning away, Paul says a similar thing. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Uh, I'm a liar. The apostles are liars. Christ is, you know, the whole thing is a hoax. And here is your option. Here is the division between Christian and non-Christian. And it's in this act that Christ claims lordship. This is the argument throughout the preaching of the uh, apostles. It's a demonstration of who is Lord. And I think that's really what's at stake in this. Who is Lord of your life? The resurrection is the proof of Jesus' lordship. It's the proof that Jesus is Savior. This is Peter's argument before the Sanhedrin. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death hanging on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It's interesting that 
You know, resurrection brings forgiveness. And Jesus has authority to do this as testimony, as testified in and through his resurrection. And we are witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given us to obey. So God, the apostles, the church, the preaching testify to the resurrection. This is Peter's, you know, sermon to Cornelius. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible and that he is appointed judge of the living and the dead. He's been, as Paul says, he's been designated son of God in power according to the holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection tells us he's savior, he's judge, he's Lord, uh, that he is the true heir of the throne of David. The death and resurrection in Romans 4, he says, is the, Paul says, is the vindicating act of God. He was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. My conclusion then, uh, what do we do? Uh, I was telling you, I, 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 you know, an atheist critique of arguments that are often made is, you know, that, well, you do not arrive at the resurrection and all that it ta- entails on the basis of an already accepted frame of thought. I think that's true. I think we can agree with the atheists here. That you're probably not going to argue someone into the resurrection on the basis, you know, uh, that what is needed is a shift in thinking, a new frame of reference. And what Paul and the New Testament are primarily setting forth is a new way of construing the world. And this new frame of reference is set upon the foundation of the preaching and the apostles. That is, this is the place we begin. We don't begin somewhere else and arrive here, but rather having arrived here, we can argue uh, for uh, this new way of thinking, this new way of living, this new community of people, as Karl Barth said it, this strange new world that we hold to as Christians. Uh, And it has coherence then in the resurrection. So what's the proof? Well, in a sense, all of Christianity is the proof that it coheres. And in Paul's argument, the implications uh, of the, you know, that the gospel is a lie, that the Christian hope is false, is itself part of the proof. He's saying, okay, here's your choices. Uh, you know, that Christ, the apostles, the preaching is a lie. He says, this is the conclusion at, in 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But then he goes on to say, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Let's sing our hymn of victory.